an old story of St. Francis of Assisi tells of the day he said to one of his students, come with me and let's go down to the village and preach to the people who need our Savior. So they went off. Once at the gate, they stopped, bent down to speak kind words to a a crippled man, and gave him a cool drink of water and a few coins. Then they saw some children playing with a ball out in a field. So they joined their game and had fun with them. While they played, a a lonely widow, watching from her doorstep, drew their attention. When they finished the game, they visited with her, bringing a few words of cheer and encouragement. A fearful young man lurked in the shadows, ashamed of what he had done the night before. They prayed with him spoke with him openly and freely about forgiveness and grace and mercy, and they encouraged him to pursue a more productive life. On the way out of town, they stopped at a small store and greeted the merchant, asked about his family, and thanked him for his faithful work through the years. Finally, Francis said, let's go back. The students stopped and said, but wait, we came to preach. To which Francis answered, every step we took, every word we spoke, Every action we did has been a sermon. The point of this old story is this. We are being watched. We are being watched by children and teenagers who want to know how this world works. And from our example, wonder how to walk in it. We're being watched by younger believers who need assurance that the path they follow is the right one. We're also being watched by those who do not believe. And our conduct, our conduct either confirms their suspicion that Christianity is foolish or it invites them to take a closer look. And as a local church, we are being watched by the community who is curious to see if we really believe what we say we really believe. 
Now, I have said none of this to alarm you, to upset you, to guilt you. That's not my intention. I'm just being real with you. We are all being watched by someone. We have been making our way through a letter from the Apostle Paul to a young co-worker named Titus. If you recall, both Paul and Titus went to the island of Crete to organize and to shepherd the churches there. But Paul would eventually leave for some other ministry leaving Titus on the island to carry on with the work they had started. Titus was instructed by Paul in this letter to appoint elders in every city where there was a church. And these elders were to encourage people with sound doctrine. Sound means healthy to encourage them with sound, healthy doctrine, but also to confront, to confront those who opposed the truth. Last week, we looked at the nature of this opposition, where Paul described these people who professed to know God. They knew the Christian lingo. They said the right things about God. But the way they lived their lives just didn't add up. In their conduct, in their behavior, their lives denied that God even mattered. To them. To the Apostle Paul, Christians can't be like those who say one thing and yet do another. We must be different from those who oppose the truth. We are to live like we believe, and that brings us to the next part of this letter, where Paul shifts his focus to the home lives of these people, because what happens in the home has an impact on the witness of the local church who is being watched. Makes sense? Now, as a backdrop, Remember that Titus is on the island of Crete. A rough and rowdy place in those days. And the home lives of these Cretans were a total train wreck. Total train wreck. So for them, Paul paints a picture 
of an ideal household that is devoted to God. He's painting a picture for them. Seemingly picking out those qualities that appear to be lacking. Okay? So if you have your Bible, turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, and we will begin with verse 1. She'll be on the board. Titus 2, verse 1. We are told, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Let's stop there. But as for you is a phrase of contrast. It's a phrase of contrast. A contrast from those Paul had previously described who opposed the truth. They professed to know God. They were very religious. They were pushing their legalistic rules on others, but their personal lives told a different story. And in contrast to all that, Titus was to speak things which were fitting for sound or healthy doctrine. He's to be different, meaning... He can't claim to believe the truth found in God's Word and yet ignore how it tells him to live. He can't do that. Sound doctrine involves more than just right thinking. It includes right living. There is more than just knowing biblical facts and truths. It also includes, like it or not, living it out. Now for sure, we may not like what God has to say to us. We may not like what God has to say to us in His Word, but He said it. He's said it, and we need to live it. So that sets the tone for the rest of the passage. Where Paul gets a little more specific and very practical. Very practical. Focusing on certain people groups in the church. And he begins, and rightly so, with the seniors. Sorry. He begins with the seniors who are very important in the home and in the life of a church. In verse 2, he says to Titus, Older men, are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. 
older. When I say older, in those days, I think we're talking about those over 50. Some say 40. I'm thinking those over 50. And Paul says these older men are to be temperate. That word in the Greek, it's a great word, means to be wineless. Wineless. And no, I'm not talking about the kind of whining we men do when we aren't feeling well and want our wives to drop absolutely everything to care for us. (laughs) Sorry, ladies, I'm not talking about that kind of whineless. We can still do that, Alan. (laughs) That's not the kind of whineless Paul is talking about. In this context, it means to be sober. And in a broader sense, which I think is the case here, Paul is saying that older men need to be sober-minded. Sober-minded, or maybe better said, clear-headed. Clear-headed when it comes to judgment. Not only that, but Paul mentions there to be dignified. That's a word we don't use much. It typically refers to people and to things that are seen as majestic in nature. But here, it speaks of men who are, I'm going to say, reserved or composed. Reserved or composed. There's there's a seriousness about them. There's a seriousness about them. And if you think about it, they know they will soon be standing before God. They're older men. And the way they live their lives is worthy of respect. Worthy of respect. Sensible is a word we need to pay attention to. Because this word is used in our passage for both genders. And for every age group, sensible. To be sensible means to be self-controlled. That's what it means, to be self-controlled. And it describes a person who is balanced, whose impulses and desires and passions are kept in check. They're restrained. A stunt pilot was selling rides in his single-engine airplane. One day, he got into an argument with a pastor, go figure, who insisted on taking his wife along at no extra charge. Not wanting to miss out on a chance to make some extra cash, the pilot said, I will take you both up for the price of one, if you promise not to utter a sound during the entire flight. If you make any noise, the price is doubled. The deal was made, and they climbed aboard the plane. 
The, the pilot quickly proceeded to put his plane through all sorts of stunts and maneuvers designed to make the bravest person tremble. But the passengers didn't make a sound. Exhausted, the pilot finally landed. As the pastor climbed out, the pilot said, I made moves up there that frightened even me. And yet you never said a word. You must have incredible self-control. The pastor thanked the pilot and then said, I must admit, there was one time when you almost had me. When was that? asked the pilot. To which the pastor replied, when my wife fell out of the airplane. <laughs> That's self-control. And maybe a few other things. I'm going to hear about that one later, I know. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Anyway, Paul continues. It says that older men should be sound in faith. During the many years, through the highs and through the lows in life, they should know enough. They should have seen enough. They should have experienced enough to know that God can be trusted. Sound in faith. Older men are to be sound in love. Men, I'm looking at you, older men. How about instead of becoming grouchier and crabbier and harder to live with as we grow older, how about we become more loving? Just a thought. I'm talking to the older men. Just a thought. How about that? And I can ask that question of you because this kind of love Paul is talking about is agape love. You guys have heard that before. Meaning, it's a choice. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on feelings. We can show this kind of sacrificial and serving love whether we feel like it or not. That's a godly love. Older men should choose to love this way because it is the right thing to do. You have no excuse. Sorry, guys. Meet me out back later behind a church if we have to. Lastly, for the older men, we are told they are to be sound in perseverance. And perseverance might be the best indicator of a genuine faith in God. Perseverance. For the older man in this life, he's been through it all. 
He's been through enough trials. He's been through enough suffering and disappointments. And now he is tempered like steel. He's tempered like steel. And instead of freaking out when life happens, he's sticking with the Lord no matter what. To the very end. That's what perseverance is. So those are Paul's words to the older men. And now we come to the, I hate you saying older women. Those are Paul's words. Probably not politically correct, but the older women. Is there a better word I should use? Seasoned women. Okay. 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 Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to do it with Paul. If you got a problem, take it with Paul. Okay? Older women, verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior. Not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. Teaching what is good. Let's stop there. Just as Paul singled out certain qualities for the older men, he does the same with the older women who had their own unique challenges likely related to the culture they were living in on the island. And he begins by saying these older women, these seasoned women, are to be reverent in their behavior, which means their conduct is to be fitting for the temple. That's what that means. Their conduct is to be fitting for the temple. That idea suggests that this woman, by her behavior, reflects a life of sacredness and holiness. That's what it means. Probably, I'm guessing, referring to her appearance, how she dresses, how she carries herself around others. That's my guess. If you notice, Paul lists two vices associated with these older women. And I'm going to assume that these these were common issues for them. I'm making that assumption. These were common issues on the island. Paul says these older women are not to be malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine. And I suspect these two vices are connected because the more they drank, the more they talked. Just guessing. Now I want to speak about the malicious gossip for a second. Okay? In the Greek, malicious gossip is one single word. It's a word you've heard of. Diablos. It is the the word diablos. Which is a term for what? The devil. 
It is a term for the devil. Those who gossip and come between people, that's what, it, that's what, that's what they do, who come between people and wreak havoc in relationships are acting just like the devil. They are doing the devil's work. And oh, by the way, just because it's framed in a prayer request doesn't mean it's not gossip. Dear Lord Jesus, thank You for this time together with my friends in this prayer meeting. Thank You. You know, I've got a prayer request for You. Lord Jesus, you know, the other night at around 10 o'clock, I was driving down Main Street, Lord Jesus, and I saw Jim come out of the city bar and grill. And Lord, you know he was with another woman, not his wife. Because I know his wife is in Las Vegas, and we know what, what happens there stays there, Lord. So Lord, I'm assuming they're having a marriage problem, probably headed for a divorce. Bless them, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. That's gossip. Right? That's gossip. Just because it's framed in a prayer request doesn't change the thing. It's a work of the devil. Probably hear about that later, too. <clears throat> so instead of giving into these vices, Paul says that the older women should teach what is good. And beginning with verse 4, we are told why. So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. As we look at this passage, and I'm only going to highlight certain aspects of it because it's just, there's just too much here, I want you to keep in mind that a Christian home was a completely new thing in Crete. Keep that in mind. It was a completely new thing in Crete. And a young woman who was saved out of paganism, who had no godly role models as she grew up, would have to get familiar with a whole new set of priorities and privileges. And so all of this would be overwhelming to her. And it clearly demonstrated the need for older, godly women to serve as mentors to these young women. That makes sense. So with that said, Paul starts by telling the young women to love their husbands. You might find this interesting. 
but I think this is the only time in the Bible where a wife is specifically told to love her husband. This might be it. But what's even more interesting is that this word for love is not agape love. Instead, it is the Greek word philandros, which describes loving your husband with fondness as a friend. I could be wrong, but have you ever heard someone say, I love you, but I just don't like you? You ever heard that? I love you, but I just don't like you. You hear it every day, Alan. Okay, okay, okay. Be praying for you, okay. I could be wrong, but I think that's the idea here. To like them. To like their husbands. And also keep in mind that in the East, in the East, these were arranged marriages. That's important. Where a man and a woman were first married, and then they got to really know one another. It's backwards for us. So it seems that Paul is encouraging these young women not only to love their husbands, but to like them, to befriend them. Trish and I have been married for 42 years. Yes. We've been watching Star Trek. We've been watching Star Trek almost every, almost every night for the last few weeks. She doesn't like Star Trek. And I forgive her for that. She's not a perfect woman. I get it. No, yeah, you stay right here. What happens here stays here. Okay? Okay. No, no. But, but I know, I know she does not like it. But it's, it's all part of befriending her husband. That's what she's doing. She's befriending me. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. Now, skipping ahead, just for the sake of time, skipping ahead, Paul says the young women are to be workers at home. I love walking through landmines. I want to be careful here. Understanding that in context, context is important. This was written to a people in a different place and time and culture. I get that. But I'm also keenly aware that this is God's Word. A living Word. And it's written to us, to you and me. 
Let me say at the onset, I understand that some sincerely believe a woman's place is in the home. And granted, there may be those situations where being a homemaker, if you will, is warranted, is necessary, it's needed. But with that said, I do not think the Bible prohibits prohibits a woman from working outside the home. For example, in Proverbs chapter 31, there was a woman described as a worthy woman, and she worked outside the home. In Acts chapter 16, where Paul was involved, we read of Lydia, who was described as a worshiper of God, and she worked outside the home as a seller of purple cloth. So we need to know what Paul is telling us here. Because I don't want someone to say, you folks claim to believe the Bible. You folks claim to believe the Bible, but you don't live it. That was the underlying problem in Crete. We want no part of that. In context, these young women are most likely childbearing and child-raising women. There's no kinder care down the road. Ideally, their husbands are providers who are working out on the job. And by necessity, by necessity, they have to manage the affairs of the household. Yes, she may go out and about. Yes, there may be things she has to do. Yes, there may be tasks to perform. But her focus is the home. Her focus is the home. We might say she is to make the house a home. My wife makes our house a home. I don't do that. My wife does that. She makes the house a home. I think that is the idea here. And Paul wants her to do it well. And any skills she may lack in doing that, the older godly women are encouraged to teach her. Paul says the young women are to be subject to their own husbands. I'm just stepping in, aren't I? Just asking for it. That word subject is the Greek word hypotasso. Hypotasso, which is a military term. It's a military term that literally means to rank under. To rank under. It speaks of the way an army is organized among levels of rank. You have generals. 
and colonels and captains and sergeants and privates. There are levels of rank and you are obligated to respect those in a higher rank. So it carries the idea of recognizing one's role and submitting to their authority. That's what it means. And the interesting thing about submission is that it does not diminish one's importance or dignity or honor. For example, a sergeant may be more talented than a general. Right, Alan? Yes, sir. Yes, okay. Yeah, a sergeant may be more talented than a general, but he is still under the rank of a general and has to submit. As the ultimate example to think of, as a child, Jesus willingly submitted to his parents, Joseph and Mary, and yet he was God in the flesh. He willingly subjected himself to their authority. Paul says the wife is to accept her role in the marriage under the leadership of her husband. And to the husbands, I want to say, God never said it was your role to get your wives to submit. That ain't written anywhere. Guys, contrary to what some might think, Husbands do not have unlimited authority to mistreat and bully and dominate their wives under the guise of submission. And husbands who treat their wives in that manner are abusing their role and have absolutely no biblical grounds to stand on. None. Now there is something else I want to say that is so important to the wives. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Real short verse. Wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. You see that? What Paul is saying is that the wife's Submission to her husband is really an act of worship and service to the Lord. In other words, she is not submitting only to her husband. She is submitting to the Lord Himself for His sake, for His reputation, and for His honor. So wise, if you need any motivation, there it is. That's the motivation for submission. You are serving and worshiping the Lord. Our home is a witness, and we are being watched. And, the res- and as a result, these things Paul has mentioned should be lived out so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. We are to live like we believe. 
Beginning with verse 6. Paul turns his attention to the younger men and he says, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. There's that word again. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will not put to shame, will not be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Once again, Paul uses the word sensible, which is another, again, the word for self-control. Young men, especially in Crete, were on the wild side. They were on the wild side. And so through the example of Titus, who was also a young man, they were encouraged to apply the brakes, so to speak, on their wild living. Paul wanted these young men to be productive instead of running amok. He wanted them to control their tempers, to master their urges and their impulses, and to bridle their tongues. So nothing evil or embarrassing could be said by those who oppose the truth. So clearly what we've seen thus far, the witness of the church and the community is a congregational thing. Not just a pastor thing. It is a congregational thing involving both men and women, young and old alike. We are being watched and we need to live like we believe. Okay, let's look at our last two verses. Begin with verse 9, we are told, Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Let me say that in no way is Paul endorsing the practice of slavery. It was just simply an everyday reality. In those days, under the rule of the Roman Empire, a third of all the population, some 60 million people, were slaves. 60 million people were slaves. In those days, slavery had become an integral part of society. It impacted all walks of life. It included all types of people who owed some sort of debt. In our passage, Paul singled out the slaves who attended church who may have been trying to sort out their personal roles and responsibilities inside and outside the church. Some may have mistakenly thought that their new spiritual freedom 
in Christ had somehow, some way, guaranteed their personal freedom as a slave. Whereby they could ignore their obligation to their masters. In other cases, it was quite possible that both the master and the slave attended the same church as brothers and sisters in Christ. And to twist that a bit, a slave could be a leader in the church and their master could be a member of it. Think about that for a moment. This was a new dynamic involving these roles inside and outside the church where there was the potential for a lot of confusion and and a lot more abuse. It doesn't take much of an imagination to see where this could lead without some guidance. And in his guidance, Paul says to the slave, Be subject to your masters. Do what is expected of you. Do what you are morally and legally obligated to do and do it well. Be obedient. Work hard. Don't argue. Don't steal. And in your unfortunate situation, there is still the potential to demonstrate the beauty of God's Word by the way you live. And everything I just said here, retained to the slave, applies to employees who are working for employers. I want to close with this last thought. People want to know that what we believe is true and real. And the way they will know is to watch us. Not just listen to us, but watch us to see if we really live like we say we really believe. We are being watched. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this time in Your Word. Lord, I pray I did it justice. Lord, I hope and pray that it was accurate to Your intent. I pray that You be honored and glorified. Not to hear, not just hear, but once we walk out these doors, especially in our homes, Lord. Especially in our homes. Father, we're being watched by kids, our kids. Our neighbors, we're being watched by our neighbors, our co-workers, our employers. We're being watched by those who oppose us. 
Lord, help us to be ever so mindful of this. Help us to live like we say we believe. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever heard the, uh, the phrase, for some people, you might be the only Bible they read? You ever heard that? For some people, you, how you live your life, might be the only Bible they read. That's an amazing thought. I was talking to my son just the other day. And we were talking about his son. And those are the words I conveyed to my son. How we live our lives might be the only Bible people read. That's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? We have to live like we believe. We can't be like those in Crete who are saying, oh, I believe in God. And they use the right Christian lingo. Said the right things. But they lived their lives as if God really didn't matter. And in today's message, the context was in the home. It was in the home. You see, I can come to church and I can put on a smile, right? I can say the right things. Oh, that Bobby's such a saint. He's such a good man. I like his hair. Sorry, Alan. <laughs> it's funny, wasn't it? No. No, but, but yeah. You get to see me for what, a couple hours a week? My wife lives with me. Mm-hmm. That's where the rubber hits the road. I can fool you here. Am I right? I can fool fool everyone of you here. I can't come here and live like a saint and then go home and live like the devil. You can't do that. You can't. That's, that's That's what Paul is saying here. We have to live like we say we believe. At home, in our workplace, in church, 
That's what he's saying. Live like you believe. Why? Because we're being watched. It's not a sinister thing. Just people are watching us. Live like you believe. Maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You don't know what you believe. Right? You don't even know what you believe. This Jesus thing is so foreign to you. Only time you use his name is in a cuss word. Or some kind of a derogatory manner. That's the only time his name is, is mentioned. Maybe you don't know Jesus at all. I would love to introduce you to him. He loves you more than you will ever know. He went to a cross for you. He died for your sins. And he wants you to trust him. I would love to introduce you to him. He wants to meet you. Maybe you're looking for a church home. Some place to call your own. We would love to have you. Or maybe you just need prayer. I'd love to pray with you. Have the Lord lead you this morning. I just, I just, I hope and pray. You just respond to Him, whatever that might look like. Whether it's seeing me or it's sitting in your chair and just bearing your soul to God. Whatever that looks like. Just be obedient to Him. He loves you. Sorry. Thank you.